Blessed you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who set us apart in order to sanctify us with his commandments and instructed us to occupy ourselves with the words of the Torah. Adonai, our God, please make the words of your Torah pleasant in our mouths and in the mouths of your people, the family of Israel, so that we, our offspring, and the descendants of your people, the family of Israel, all of us, may be knowers of your name and learners of your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the nations of the world to give us his Torah. Blessed are you, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay. Well, last week, I thought was just extraordinary. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from you guys on... uh, how much you like the class and, you know, all that kind of good stuff. And that's always great to hear, and I appreciate that. Um, but some of my closest friends were not here. <laughs> Dilly-dallying about in wrecked cars and so forth. So, um, yeah. <laughs> Talk to the man upstairs. Yes, that's right. So... Um, so I wanted to do a quick review and make sure we're straight. And as we go through that review, if you guys want to, that we're here, want to throw in some comments, great. Um, and we'll, we'll move forward. But I wanted to talk about the Sanhedrin tonight and, and get just some further info based on what we talked about. So if you don't know what we talked about, then, you know, this class is not really going to work too well. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll do a review for all those people. Back from the dead, the ponytailed Indian himself. Well, let's let's all just pause and say, "Wow, Noah, God bless you, man. It's good to see you." And I'm glad you're here. That's right. I can fix it. Soft chair there, Noah. If you can, uh, if you can take it. I mean, you know. Might as well. Isaac, you get the hard chair. No, no. There's there's more soft ones here. Okay. So again, to reiterate, we're gonna we're gonna review, and we're gonna review so that we can have good discussion. So before we do that, I thought it might be good to just have a quick quiz since Noah's here, and uh, our quiz. Uh, actually has prizes. Um, as you know, or man, as many of you know, I'm, uh, I'm in the IT field, and I feel compelled to buy things when they come on the market just to test them out so that I can act like I know everything about anything that may be out there. Um, so the table is filled with all kinds of goodness, and I'll describe some of those goodness things. Uh, they are yours to take home tonight, um, to be honest with you, um, and full disclosure. Even if you can't answer all of the Bible quiz questions, I'm still going to give all this crap away. Um, but I clean out the closet, and some of it is really cool stuff. Hello, Timothy. Good to see you, brother. Um, there's a soft chair here for you if you want. Unless you're going to fall asleep, then get, you know, get in the hard chair. Okay. Is it that no one wants to sit with you? I'm going to stand over here so that you feel good about this. All right. So a quick Bible quiz. You have to raise your hands. All right, so the first thing, how were the Maccabees related to the Hashmoni or the Hasmoneans? 
anybody <laughs> other than the guy who's laughing and this guy. They are one and the same. But can you tell me how these names derive? Why would that's like saying the Hatfields and the McCoys are really the same tribe? But what, what's the deal here? Well, the word is Greek for hammer. The hammer. Now, a great thing to have in time of war. I mean, you think Thor, don't you? I mean, sorry, yeah. it's, it's, it's Hebrew for hammer. It's Hebrew for hammer. Yeah, it's the same deal, right? Hashmanaim is uh, it was what what they actually called themselves, whereas the Maccabees was the term that they got that the hammer because they were hammer like. Yes. Hashmanaim. Uh, I can't remember if that's where they hailed from or if that was their heritage. Yeah, that's their family name, the Hashmoni. Sure. Good. Outstanding. So, um, as soon as the quiz is over, we have a uh, we have a digital picture frame. Available for you, complete with remote. And uh, yeah, it has a lot of input features. And, uh, is that yeah. an iPad too? Yeah, <laughs> the iPad, anything white does not go. Um, so that's good. So, well, I'm just going to name the various things as somebody uh, gets an answer. And then you can come up and take whatever you want. Um, the Hasmonean dynasty ended when Pompey ended the civil war between two of the Hasmonean brothers and left Antipater in charge. His son, Antipater's son, took over upon his death. Who was he, and what was his title? Who was Antipater's son, and what was the title that Rome gave to him? Now this is, uh, as far as I'm concerned, History 101, Tim. If you don't know this, I'm a little concerned. Yes, go, Johnny. Long, long shot. Long shot. Here it is. He steps up. And he hooks hard to the left and is in the trap. Sorry, no, it's not Vespasian. Anybody? Greg? Come on. History buffs of the world? This is a history 401. 401? Bible is this? You know what the amazing thing is? I Say that again. It's not Jason, although that's a very good thought. Because Jason was a high priest and yet had a Greek name. What's up with that? Yeah. No, you're a little too early. You're wondering. 401. But we've taught this. Okay. You're right. It doesn't make it simple. Antipater is the one who actually called Rome. So we got these two Maccabean brothers and there's a civil war going on and people are dying. So Antipater steps in and calls Rome, little hotline job, and says, you need to do something about this. People are dying. Pompey comes down, kicks Roman butt, and puts Antipater in charge. He's sort of a double agent, as it were. His son is an Idumean. As Antipater is. Uh, is Herod? Is it Herod? It is Herod. Good for you. Antipater's son is Herod, and the title that Rome gave him was? King, king of the Jews. He was king of the Jews. Yes. Now, the Idumeans, as I recall, were unpleasantly woken one night because they were really 
sympathizing with that whole Greek culture thing and getting into it. And the Maccabees, Hasmoneans, showed up and said, if you're really a Jew, you're going to step up and be circumcised. Not many guys stepped up, so they forcibly circumcised the Idumeans. Oh, my! Yes. <laughs> Tough time for them. Our second prize up is a, an actual DVD player that comes not only with a regular electrical outlet, but with a car charger and, in the brown box, a kit to mount it to the back of the seat for the kids to watch while you're on your trip. Yes, it's true. All right, question number three on our Bible quiz. Why did Caesar Augustus say it's safer to be a pig in Herod's house than one of his sons? There's two parts to this answer. Petras. Because he killed all his sons? He killed his sons in what way? He barbecued. He didn't barbecue them. He strangled his sons. Why did he do that, Pete? Because he was afraid they were going to take over. They were going to take over. He was very concerned about somebody taking over his rule. And the second part. Why did he mention the pig? Pig in Herod's house. Pig in Herod's house. Pig. Pig. Can you help him? He's going to call for a lifeline. He doesn't eat pig. Why doesn't he eat pig? He's faking to be a Jew. Because he's a half-breed. He's an Idumean. He's a half-breed. He's half-Jewish. And he eats kosher. Maybe I'm thinking of somebody else, but didn't he also have his wife killed? He sure did. Yeah. The guy was... Yeah, he's not so paranoid. He's not so. But paranoid was the key there. And that's why a guy who shows up that people say is king of the Jews might be a problem for a guy who knows he's the king of the Jews. Or thinks he is. Um, Yeah, he ate kosher. Now, the amazing thing here is that Caesar in Rome knows that Herod eats kosher. That's interesting. How many people know you eat kosher? Our third app. Item up are the mobile wireless outdoor speakers, which are actually controlled wirelessly from this little unit here where you can sit your iPod and connect it up with the little auto retractable. <laughs> Uber. That's the word you want to say. Uber. Line. <laughs> we have an extra. Yes, indeed. Comes with all the fixings, including a remote, to make it louder or softer. Yes, this Father's Day gift can be yours too, if you know the answer to question number four. According to the Talmud, who were the four most beautiful women in the world? Someone who hasn't answered before. Esther. Esther. Twenty-five percent is still failing. I was going to say. Rachel. Rachel, but Rachel would be incorrect. Are these Talmudic women? (laughs) Is this Talmudic beauty? So what is a Talmudic woman, anyway? Rivka? Rivka is not on the list in the Talmud. Sarah is number one, and Esther is number four. Delilah? Delilah! No. Although I bet she was pretty attractive. 
You know, my wife thought Ruth would be on the list too. Both of you are still wrong. Jezebel? Jezebel actually was an unattractive woman. I know this on, on uh, direct account. <laughs> Sarah and Esther, Rahab or Rahab, absolutely. Rahab was considered in the Talmud one of the four most beautiful women in the world. Why do you suppose that was? What about Bathsheba? Bathsheba. Or Bathsheba. Yeah. No, she was only cool when she was naked taking a bath. <laughs> We've got three out of the four, gentlemen. Sarah, Rahab or Rahav, and Esther, who was known throughout. I mean, she won the beauty contest, right? But there's one other woman. Zipporah, not Aphrodite. Zipporah was probably more, not quite as Arabian finely manicured. You know. <laughs> I'm sorry? Arabian flavor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was your... Um, Aphrodite is not on the list. list. Didn't make it on the Talmud's list, no. So, being that we said Rahab, it doesn't have to be a Jewish woman. I never said it was a Jewish woman. In the world. Hagar. No, and I thought she would. Um, I don't know why, but, you know, same kind of thing with with that one there. You just just kind of think Ruth, Hagar. This one is definitely... uh, You know... My wife thought Eve would be there, and at one point she certainly was the most beautiful woman on the world. Right? Um, unfortunately, that was before the Talmud was written. What about the Ethiopian woman that Moses married? That Cushite caused a lot of problems in last week's portion, as I understand, yes. but evidently, not according to the Talmud, top four. Tamar, probably with a veil on, was pretty alluring, as I understand, but uh, no. Dina, no. Deborah, she could sing, also lead a battle, but, you know. It's not Miriam. It wasn't Miriam. Are we close at all? Are you close? Well, let's see. From Genesis to Revelation, are you close? Well. Is it pre? uh, Ah, Here we go. uh, Galut Bavli or post? It is pre-Galut Bavli. Galut Bavli, for those that are perhaps under. Exile. Is the exile to Babylon or yeah, to Babylon. Um, so the, the Babylonian exile would, would, would be about here, right? And we come back about in the middle of the wall. So 578, before the common era, it was before that. In fact, I can, I can give you the answer by just saying King David. Abigail? Abigail. Yes. Abigail, whose husband was a, a jerk. Right? He was, in fact, a fool. That's what his name means. Fool. How about that? It's almost like I knew that. (laughs) Yes. Um, So the four, according to the Talmud, the four most beautiful women in the world, Sarah, Rahab, Abigail, Esther, and Queen Esther. You know what that means? You don't read the Talmud enough? If you didn't finish reading the Bible, stick with that. Okay, so, two more prizes. One, the JBL Bluetooth remote speaker. Smoking hot. Very expensive, very cool. Comes with all of the fixings. And then a color 
cassette. A color display weather station that actually will connect to the Noah Huber thing by radio waves with no internet necessary and tell you everything about what's happening on the other side of the window without you even looking. Unbelievable, I know. At the break, you are welcome to grab anything you want. If there's an argument, the man who knows more Torah wins. All right. What are the first two references to the ecclesia in the Bible? The first two references to the ecclesia. Does this count the Septuagint? Are we talking about in the I'm talking about the Bible. My Bible says from Genesis. Well, I would use the Septuagint for the. That was my question. I beg your pardon. Yes, it would have to be in the Septuagint. Exodus 19. Exodus 19. I've got one later than that because Exodus 19 doesn't use Ecclesia. Genesis. Which, which, what? Uh, Another reference, I'll make you a congregation of nations. Where is that? Uh, Genesis. You said later. It's after an Exodus. Later than your dad. We think kahal and and these other Hebrew words, but it's interesting, if ecclesia is translated as church all the time, every time in the apostolic writings, except one, I'm sorry, are you guys new to this? Ecclesia, the word for church in Greek, assembly, is translated in English, in all Bibles, as church, absolutely without question, except in one reference in the apostolic writings, it is translated as synagogue. Revelation. Thank you, it's actually in chapter 3, I believe. The synagogue of Satan, yes, we couldn't let that go, could we? Couldn't be the church of Satan, yes, yes. So, if we look at ecclesia, that word that we are translating regularly as kirken, or church, and go back to the Septuagint, or the Greek scriptures, the Greek copy of the Tanakh, then we would find in... Oh, I have a question. (laughs) Yes. So... The word used for kahal and adat. Yes. Adat. What is that translated to Septuagint? It kahal is almost always ecclesia, but not always. Okay, so that would be the earliest reference. The earliest reference is in Deuteronomy, chapter four, and I think it's verse ten. In the Septuagint, that's the first time ecclesia shows up. After the salvation from Egypt. It is. Then they are a people. Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 9 are the first and second references to Ecclesia in the Septuagint. So, it's cool. It's a little trivial. I think it's 410 and 910. Check. What do you got in 410? Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 10. Gather, gather. That's it right there. Really? Yep. What verse? Deuteronomy 4.10. Deuteronomy 4.10. Deuteronomy 4.10. Deuteronomy 4.10. Deuteronomy 4.10. Deuteronomy 4.10. Deuteronomy 4.10
Is that it? I'm a little confused. Isn't that a verb? Yep. It's a gathering of people. But it could have the root. The root source, the word. Ecclesia. It's actually a... What's the imperative form of Ecclesia? <laughs> you got me, man. So it's you really got me. Make a church of these people. Church I'm going to bring it up. I don't have it handy to bring up. Is it tied to people? <laughs> Go to 9.10, Deuteronomy 9.10. Yes, the day of the assembly. On the day of the assembly. And he's referencing the same event in both cases that he assembled the people at the mountain in order to... Yeah, yeah. And, and Exodus 19 is the event. He talks about it in Deuteronomy 4 and Deuteronomy 9. Uh, and the same thing. So that's the cool deal there. All right, so we're, we're done with our little giveaway. God bless you. If you didn't do well, study harder. Keep reading. That's all there is. The all-seeing eye. Healing on Shabbat. Mark 3, 5. He looked around. That's the, that's the phrase I was looking for in the English Standard Version. Yeshua looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. You know that reference, right? They're arguing about whether it's you can heal on Shabbat. And he got angry, and he looked around at each man. Healing as the Mashiach, Mark 5, 31 and 32. And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years snuck in, grabbed his eat seat, and he felt power leave from him. You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. I just think those two are pretty cool. Yeah, maybe. Saving the wealthy. Mark 10. This rich man comes up to him. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You should keep the commandments. You should do this. You should do that. He says, I've done all that stuff. I've done this since being a youth. I've been, do, I've been doing that. Well, what else do I need to do? Sell all that you have. Follow me. And Yeshua looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Hmm. Here's the master looking around. Cleansing the house. Mark 11, 11. He entered Jerusalem, went into the temple. Went in. He looked around at everything. As it was already late, he went out to Bethany, or Bethany, with the twelve. He's about to cleanse the temple the very next morning. We talked about that last week. But he looked around. Jeremiah 7.11 Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares Adonai. Do you think that that verse in Jeremiah is actually referring not to the all-seeing eye of the creator of the universe, but rather a prophetic reference to Yeshua physically walking into the temple and looking around and seeing everything that they had done. When he had looked around, looked around, Looked around, looked around. I myself have seen it. Hey, could be, could be. 
it should make you wonder when God is seeing something or God's hand is going to do something. Does He maybe make a reference to His Mashiach? Who redeemed the children of Israel from Egypt? Moses, true. God, Messiah, God, the prophet, like him, with his right hand. That's it. All those are right answers. So how many of them refer to Messiah? And we should be watching for those. It is a quick review for, let's see, one, two, three, four, five people. All right, five people. If I go too fast, tough. And uh, anyone else that needs some help, chime in there. We talked about the money changers set up each year in the area of the temple. But they set up in Jerusalem, according to the Talmud, on the 25th of Adar, every year. It was their habit. 25th of Adar. Five days later, I'm about to step into Nisan, and I'm going to have everybody showing up for... Passover, which is the first Shlosh Regalim. Three pilgrimage feasts. Did he go up to the temple for Passover on a regular basis, or was this a one-off? Pretty much had to go every time. He pretty much had to. He had to. He had to go up. The law says to go up. Did he break the law? He went up. Who's he, Messiah? Hello? He went up every year. Why didn't he kick out the money changers until the very last year of his life? Our premise last year was, uh, last year, our premise last week was something changed. Something's different this year. Price gouging was against Pharisaic law, according to the Talmud, and yet it was happening, and they list out some of the things that things were costing, and it's enormous. Well, if it's against the Pharisaic law, why was it happening? It made it impossible for those who were less fortunate uh, wealth-wise to, to participate actively. Exactly right. Something must have happened, though. If it was against Pharisaic law, how could it be happening? Pharisaic law, according to the Talmud, prohibited carrying anything on the Temple Mount, but Yeshua, after he cleanses the Temple, throws over the money changers Temple, uh, money changers tables and shoes out all of the merchants he, it says, he stops people from carrying things across the temple mount. If it's against Pharisaic law then why did he have to stop the practice? Something must have changed. The high priest took Yeshua to Pilate for sentencing saying that it was not lawful for them to put anyone to death but according to Devarim 17 they can put somebody to death. Yes sir. So we have uh, we have a halakhic ruling today. You know the whole can't carry outside your domain, so right? Yes. And one of the and one of the proof texts for that. Thirty-nine Melikot. Right. One of the proof texts for that is they point to Nehemiah thirteen, 
Right. But when you look at Nehemiah 13, what Nehemiah, in the, in the context, yes. what Nehemiah had an issue with was not just that they were carrying stuff in and out of the city gates, but they were specifically carrying merchandise. Yes. In order to transact on the Shabbat, so and 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 these were exactly. these were not necessarily Jews, right? You know, I mean, he's he's saying, look, we're closing the gate. You're not going to be able to come in here and do that, right? But but his issue is is primarily preventing the, the, the commerce commerce on Shabbat, right? Buying and but, selling. But but that text has been taken as one of the proof texts for why we don't carry. On Shabbat. Yes. It's interesting that we have a reference to tell me to a Pharisaic prohibition of not carrying anything on the temple. On the temple mount, right. right. But but we don't know that the Pharisees didn't get it from the very same place you're saying. Sure. But but what's interesting is in the context of what Yeshua does, it's the same thing. His real issue is that they are transacting in a place of sanctity. And, and, and to your point... And they're presumably carrying merchandise yes. in and on and off the temple. Yes. And, and, and that's what he has problems. You bet. So, and to your point, we know for a fact it wasn't the Sabbath. Right, that wasn't. That right? Was yeah. So what he's saying is, this place, yeah. it's like Sabbath yeah. law all the time. There's no transaction. That's exactly right. So, transacting business, why are you carrying that merchandise? Good. Excellent. Excellent point. Good. All right. So, Deuteronomy 17.8, they can put people to death. And they have to decide these capital cases in the temple. We, we know from history, from Josephus, as well as from the Talmud, they did this in the uh, room of the hewn stones or something like that. Um, John 18.31, they say they can't go out. They, 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 they can't do it. Something must have changed. Okay? And Solomon says the Sanhedrin was exiled in Yeshua's last year. 30 of the common era, they were exiled. Off the Temple Mount. They're gone. They have to work someplace else. Well, of course, someplace else, they can't do the death penalty. The Talmud teaches us that the Tzadukim, who are the Tzadukim? Sadducees. So when you see Tzadokim, you think uh, Sadducees. This comes from Tzadok, right? The guy who was the head of the, or the beginning of their group. They altered the calendar by using false witnesses as to when Nisan started and bumped it a day. The Talmud does not say kind words about the Tzadokim of Yeshua's day. In fact, it's, it's unpleasant. The Talmud says some really bad things about Hanan and Caiaphas. That would be in your English Bibles, Annas and Caiaphas, right? Some really unpleasant things. The Talmud says that the temple was destroyed because of the crime of bloodshed and baseless hatred. We see this in the scriptures. All right, that was a good review, I think. Everybody up to speed? Uh, my point last week was something changed. The Sanhedrin was pushed off, either of their own doing, working with Rome, the Sadducees working with Rome, and getting it pushed off the Temple Mount so they no longer could do the, uh, uh, the death penalty. But at the same time, they could reduce or eliminate the effect 
or uh, the influence of the Pharisees on the Sanhedrin. And that's why we see so much going on with the chief priests, plural. Why is that an anomaly, chief priests? Should only, one and it Should only have one, and he lasts until he dies. And then you got another chief priest, singular. Yes, sir? Does the, does the Sanhedrin consist of members of the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, or is it just Sadducees, or uh, can you help me with that? I will. If you'll hold that thought, I think I've got that laid out for you. In just a minute, we'll see. Okay. Um, it's interesting. You'd think Sanhedrin, by the way, in your English Bibles, is translated as the word council. Council. Sunedrin. Uh, Sunedrian is Sanhedrin, and that's translated as council. When we get to that in a couple of slides, I think you'll find it interesting, because I believe that last week you noted that the way they called the Sanhedrin together on the night that the master was betrayed, um, it looks like they gather up the whole shnanil. And it, it, it says, I, we can look at the exact language. We will. It says, at dawn or at the break of day or whatever, they took him before the whole, whole council. council. Exactly. And that word council is Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, yeah. So we assume that it means the whole dealio. And, and that's what we're going to look at. Uh, it's interesting that uh, the Sanhedrin is mentioned. The, 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 uh, the Sanhedrin is, is mentioned throughout the Master's life, throughout the Scriptures, from the beginning uh, of his life un, until the very end. But John never refers to the Sanhedrin. Only one time does John mention the Sanhedrin. So we're going to get into that. Because John is the anomaly, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are known as the synoptic, synoptic or parallel. parallel Gospels. And John is off by itself. But John is decidedly different here, so we're going to look at that. But before we go there, I want I to talk about shadows a little bit. Because um, I was walking through the book of Acts, which is where we got last week's class. And, you know, what's, what's the next thing that happens? If you'll recall, let's just review. Um, the Master's risen. We've got the day of Shavuot, or Pentecost. And 3,000 righteous, pious, orthodox Jews come to faith in Messiah and accept him in Yeshua and accept Yeshua as the Messiah. It's a fabulous time. They start to sell their possessions. They're living uh, together there because most of the people we're talking about don't live in Jerusalem. They live in the Galilee. They came in. They don't want to go home. Why? Because the temple is so cool. They want to be in the temple. They're teaching in the temple after Shavuot. Peter and John especially, and what happens? Hey, you guys can't... No, no, no. The council would like to see you. So they're put in custody overnight. They bring them out in the morning and say, don't do that. We don't want you to teach, A, about the resurrection, because we don't believe in that, and B, we don't want you to teach in his name. Now, Peter was pretty bold, made it clear, you guys killed him. Oops. It's really not ingratiating yourself to the court. Um, And they let him go. About two months later, they are called back in, and all of them are arrested. But between that time, you've got some serious miracles going on. And in fact, one of the ones that I love is the shadow business. Right? They're taking all the sick and they're sticking them in the street. So that when Peter walks by, his shadow 
will fall on the sick people. But of course, that's just hooey, right? I mean, they're not actually going to get, get well, are they? Yes. His shadow falls on them, and they get healed. What's up with that? I want to talk about shadows. Come. I actually have a question, but I'm wondering if maybe I should ask it later on. Well, do you know how the square root of 2... Well, let's go with the square root of 3. Do you know how the square root of 3 is related to George Washington's birth? Is this the square root of 2? Mm-hmm. The square root of 2 is related to George Washington's birth. I have no idea. Well, then you'll have to hold your question until later. Okay. <laughs> so we're going to talk about shadows. Numbers chapter 19, verse 14. Would you turn to that in your Bibles, please? Numbers chapter 19 and verse 14. This is the Torah when someone dies in a tent. Dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who's in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. Is that what your Bible says? No. Do you you know the order of these things? Have you got it there? You got it? Okay. So does yours match mine pretty much? Yes. So a guy dies, he's in his tent, and he's dead. You and I walk in. Sam, how you doing? Sam? Sam, neither one of us touch him. But we're both now unclean. In fact, we're as unclean as if we pick Sam up to bury him, which is a great mitzvah. You might as well. You might as well have picked him up. So, did God put this here to make sure that we weren't afraid to pick the dead guy up to bury him? Or is there something else that we should learn here? What do you think? Maybe it's a hook. Maybe it's a hook or a hook. Right? What is the legal status of your shadow? Because the Talmud used this verse in Numbers 19 to come up with the whole shadow deal. That's why if your shadow, your shadow goes over a grave, you're unclean. Why? Because they used the tent as a shadow. The tent is making a shadow over the dead guy. The guy's in the shadow of death. And you've stepped into the same shadow of death. And therefore, you are unclean. Do you see where they got it? So the Talmud is teaching about the legal status of my shadow. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I got saved, the last thing I was concerned about was my shadow. Are you allowed to drink beer on the Sabbath? Do you know what day the Sabbath is? Is there a... Right? I mean, we got some real stuff to deal with. The shadow? Come on! But really, that's what they're looking at. The sages forbid even sitting in the shade of a tree that had been used for idolatrous workshop. They're doing some crazy stuff in that tree. Hey, baby, the shadow of that tree... You can't use that for some shade, let me tell you. Why? Because the tree, you're benefiting from... Idolatry. That, that it, it puts a barrier between the proximity that you can approach. There's a major fence now, right? So that's the shadow of an idolatrous tree. I don't want to be associated with a tree. Well, the shadow has legal status, just as mine does. That's pretty cool, if you think about it. The shadow is considered an extension of the shadow caster. Now, 
If I were taking notes, baby, I'd be writing that one down. Because that's exactly what the Talmud is teaching. That the shadow is an extension of the shadow caster. And in fact, if you think about it, we believe the th- same thing. Hebrews. Yeah. Shadow of the things to Yes. All of these things that we've learned in the temple and all of this are shadows of the things that will come. And in fact, we see the shadows of Messiah throughout the Tanakh. We see he is the shape of the things that are real. Mr. Spurlock's uh, yeah. coat study yes. is just phenomenal. It's full of that stuff. Yeah. Moses. It's a good thing, but Christians interpret them usually as bad. Yeah. Moses was shown a shadow of the temple above. He was to make a shadow. Yes. Psalm 91. He dwells in the shelter of the Most High, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Isn't that cool? Right? Yes, sir. So then with that uh, final bullet point, the uh, shadow is considered an extension of the shadow caster since we see Messiah shadowed in the Tanakh and in the Torah. It's like he's there. You can can know his substance by looking at the shadow. That's pretty cool. I like that. It's neat. And we see that even in the Psalms. Yes, sir. This is good, too, because I think a lot of times there's a disconnect between the temple that was built before, and it's almost assumed that, oh, that's just the man-made one. We're looking forward to something else. But people forget that it wasn't even possible for them without this supernatural empowerment of the Spirit to even build it. Well, true. But what was he building? From the pattern or shadow that he was shown on the mountain. Oh, man. This is cool stuff. Acts chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. More than ever, believers were added to Adonai, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Petros came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Because his shadow was as filled with the Spirit of God as he was. Because his shadow is nothing but an extension of himself, of the shadow caster. You've got an abundance of the Spirit if your shadow can do miracles, let me tell you. I thought that was pretty cool. And that is the next, uh, that's where we're up to uh, as I'm walking through the, the book of Acts uh, this summer. Um, that's, that's where we're at. So that was completely an aside so that we could go back to the timing that we're talking about. Yeah, sorry about that. So, This authority to execute um, is something that we looked at uh, last week. Um, But just to make sure we're clear here, I've noticed a couple of things that seem out of place. If, If you're still of the opinion that nothing changed, and the Sanhedrin that was in place when Yeshua was born is the same Sanhedrin that put him to death. The Sanhedrin did not have the authority to issue the death penalty against Yeshua. They were forced to go to Pilate. Later, the council did have the authority to execute Stephen. And he was stoned while Shaul watched. I submit that something did change. And my hope in this class is to show you when it changed. Not necessarily why. I'll leave that to you. Yes, sir. My question fits now. Okay, see? Perfect timing. When, after Yeshua had risen, and um, you have the... uh, 
presumably the members of the Sanhedrin pay off the Roman soldiers to say yes. that his disciples came during the night to steal the body. Yes, I would Were caution they? you to make sure that you quote that accurately yes. as to who paid for that, and I think you might find it wasn't the Sanhedrin. Okay. But maybe the, the chief priests. It never says the Sadducees, but I think it was the chief priests. Well, I'm just, I'm but just go ahead. reasoning. I'm not saying, you know, it was, yes. but I'm reflecting on what we've been talking about. And since they didn't believe in the resurrection, they wanted to try and downsquelch yeah, that whole story. That. You bet. That's yeah. a good point. Okay. Yeah. Why would, they, why would they care if someone believed that he rose from the dead? Unless it's the Messiah thing. And then I think you've got an argument on either side of the case, right? Oh, by the way, um, the square root of 2 is 1.732, which is the year that George Washington was born. Wow. Yeah, there you go. All right, Shaul's history. I make what? Learn something new. Well, of course you do. Yes, indeed. Shaul's history. If Shaul was a student of Gamaliel, the most respected Perush or, or uh, Pharisee, and closely associated with the Sanhedrin, he would know. There's no way he couldn't know that the Sanhedrin was comprised of both Prushim and Sadakim. Had to. He knew there were Pharisees and Sadducees. In fact, if you look at the makeup of the Sanhedrin, they meet in a semicircle, and there's three, this is according to the Talmud, there's three rows of each man's students so that they can be chosen as alternates, like in a jury, if the main guy's got to go. He gets called out for whatever reason. One of his Tommy Deem can step in in his place and they can still transact business. Well, Paul himself says he was a student of Gamaliel. It's a very good chance since he was such a player back then. He was one when the Sanhedrin was in, in session would be one of the ones in one of those three rows of Tommy Deem. Right? So he would know. A course made up of both sides. Pharisees and Sadducees. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, we note that despite being a Pharisee after the resurrection, Shaul receives letters from the Kohen Gadol and the Tzadukim, the Sadducees, to arrest the followers of Yeshua. But he's a, he claimed to be a Pharisee. Right? At the end of his life, in Acts chapter 26, he claims, he's I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. Top shelf. According to the Torah, blameless. He's a Pharisee. But he goes to the Sadducees and the chief priests to get these letters so that he can go and arrest the followers that aren't in Jerusalem. Because it says he arrested the ones in Jerusalem. That's why he went to Damascus. That didn't work out too well for him. Maybe it did. My point is, He's dealing with both parties. He knows both parties exist. Well, here's a thought then. In Acts 23, verse 6, when Shual perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the res- of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. How could he perceive that? How could he realize that there was two parties, unless there was a time when there wasn't two parties. Do you get it? Obviously, you know, the 
Sadducees are against the resurrection and the Pharisees actually are for it. Absolutely. My point is, he perceives that one part's Pharisee, one part's Sadducee. Well, why would he have to perceive that if it was that way all the time? This verse teaches very clearly there was a change. There was a time where he thought it was all Sadducees, no Pharisees. Had to be. Or he wouldn't have been surprised, as it were, that there was actually Pharisees and Sadducees, and he could use this ploy to get off. Make sense? Or, so you're, you're, so you're supposing, your presupposition is that prior to this point, at some point prior to this point, the, the Sanhedrin consisted of only... Primarily Sadducees, yes. Yes. Why couldn't it be the other way around? Maybe it consisted primarily of Rashim, if, could be, but if that were if that were the case, you don't have any examples of that prior to that. But you do have examples where it seems to be nothing but Sadducees, as I went through last week. Okay. Gotcha. So all I'm saying is, here at the back end of Acts, Paul's not been in Jerusalem. He's been out, and now he's in front of the Sanhedrin, and it's like, whoa, both parties are back. We got everybody here. Guys, I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. Hello? Yeah, yeah, see? Right? Yeah, Yeah, I know you hate that. Yeah, you love that. Yeah, 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 fine. I'm done here. Right? It's, I mean, that's, why else would the perceived be there? That or, I don't, I'm not sure the San Angelo was entirely bicameral, I think is the term. There's two parties. Yes. Um, I've heard... from various sources, there were up to like 18 different flavors of Judaism. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, so perhaps it's that. It's mostly, wow, there's only two. Well, I mean, within the Prashim, I mean, you should not have left. I mean, I, I can name at least half a dozen noteworthy Pharisees. If there's only half a dozen out of 71 guys, they can't say much. But he's perceiving that one part and the other part... That's how the scripture puts it. It's pretty much, forget the sex. If we want to genericize, we got pretty much one part Protestant, one part Catholic. Hey, babies, transubstantiation is why I'm standing here. And the Catholics go at it. That's pretty much what we're looking at. Right? I'm not saying there's only Pharisees and Sadducees. I'm just saying that Paul at this point perceived, and I think perceived a difference from the last time he had seen the Sanhedrin. It's just just a thought, guys. Just a thought. Alright. It seems to be primarily a two-party system. The Sanhedrin included both Pharisees and Sadducees during Yeshua's lifetime. We know that. They were the primary parties, and there were other parties, but there was alignments, for sure, depending on the theology. Shortly before Yeshua's arrest, the Sanhedrin is exiled off the Temple Mount, as we've presupposed in our last class. They're no longer able to adjudicate capital cases, and this forces them to involve Rome in his execution, and I believe it was orchestrated by the unchecked Tzadukim, the unchecked Sadducees, because the Pharisees are not there as much to slow it down. That's not to say the Pharisees didn't want him dead. We know for a fact, many did not. 
Can you find, by the way, even one example? Just one. You don't have to do it now. One example in the Bible where a Sadducee is called a believer in Yeshua. Can you give me one example from history out of Josephus where a Sadducee is... We have Pharisees, but not... Oh, we got a lot of Pharisees, and I'm going to get into that in a second. Sadducees we don't seem to have. Priests we do. So you're saying because Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection from the dead, by definition they can't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. So they don't believe in a Messiah. They would become Pharisees. They would become Pharisees. How about that? All right, well, that's something to think about. The Sanhedrin was reconstituted with Pharisees once again by the time the Shlikim were arrested the second time. We're going to look at that. We're going to look at when the apostles were arrested the second time. Last week we looked at the first time. Peter and John preaching the resurrection, preaching Yeshua as the Messiah. Pull them aside. They hold them overnight. Tell them not to do that anymore. The second time, actually, it gets a little tougher. Acts, 4, chapter, Acts chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Hanan the Kohen Gadol and Caiaphas and Yochanan and Alexandros and all who were of the family of the Kohen Gadol. What is that verse trying to tell us? Big weeks. It's the big weeks, and primarily all having to do with the Kohen Gadol. It's the rulers, the elders, and the scribes with Annas, Caiaphas, and his two sons. This seems to just breathe Sadducean high priest type stuff. In Acts chapter 5, in verse 17 and 18, but the Kohen Gadol rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Tzadokim, of the Sadducees. The scripture actually says it. The ones who are associated with the high priest are the Sadducees. Huh. All who were up. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the Shlikim and put them in the public prison. Now this is my point, is that Acts chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, is when I see in the scriptures something happened. If you recall from last week, Peter and John were arrested and they were detained. It doesn't say where. They were detained, we assume, in the temple overnight. Because it was late. It was already turning to evening. And we know that the Sanhedrin, according to the Talmud, only worked and did their judicial work from the morning sacrifice to the afternoon sacrifice. So you all showed up for the morning sacrifice, they do the sacrifice, and then they all sit down and they judge until it's time to get up for the afternoon sacrifice, and then they all go home. That's when the Sanhedrin worked, from 9 to 3. They arrested them, and it's already after 3 o'clock. So they held them until morning, the morning sacrifice is over, and they said, you guys shouldn't be talking about this, and we're not pretty happy with you. Don't talk about this anymore. And they left. But in Acts chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, 
They arrest all of them. They arrest a dozen guys and they put them in the public prison. And I think that was key. I think we had a little bit of behind closed doors maneuvering and the Pharisees stepped up. Somebody, somehow, managed to say, enough's enough. Maybe it was because we had a at least two or three, maybe even four, high-end Pharisees that believed Yeshua was the Messiah. And they just stepped up and said, you can't do this to these people. And they put it back the way it was. I think, as I said, that's where the line is. Because look to what happens three verses later. Acts chapter 5 and verse 21. Now when the Kohen Gadol came, and those who were with him, we know what that means, they called together the Sanhedrin, all the Senate of the people of Israel. Whole council is not unique, but that word senate definitely is. One time in the Bible, right there. And sent to the prison to have them brought. That's unique. Something changed. That's never seen again, never seen before. There seem to be people present now that certainly weren't present before when they were arrested. Acts chapter 5 and verse 34, it's about 10 verses later. But a... Pharisee in the Sanhedrin named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and he gave orders. He gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. How can that be? All I'm saying is, prior to this point, if you're reading the book of Acts, the high priest seems to be the guy in charge. He's working the system. He's doing what he wants. He's got his family with him. And the Sadducees and the elders and the scribes. And that's a consistent phrase right there. And they're doing what they want. But then they put these guys in a public prison. And, of course, they got out. You, you read the story, right? Where the angel shows up. Unlocks the prison. It happens more than once, but you know the other time it was just Pete. But this time, it's all of them. Opens up, gets him out right before daylight. It's about morning's about to break. The angel says, go back in the temple. And preach what life is all about. So they go back in the temple and they're preaching right where they were arrested the previous day. All of them. And they send to the prison to get these guys, and they're not there. But the guards are on guard. And somebody comes in from the temple and says, um, I, I think the guys that you arrested yesterday are, are out there preaching again. I mean, it sounds pretty good. I like it, but I'm not going to tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> so they call them in, and this is when Gamaliel stands up. I'm astonished that he's actually, as a Pharisee, at this point, he's able to give orders. So I just get the feeling something happened when they put these guys in prison, in the public prison. It's like the Pharisees just came together and pulled the high priest aside and said, enough's enough. You killed this guy? His blood's on your head. We haven't been able to do these capital cases you're running the show whatever way you want. It ain't going to happen anymore. We're back. We're in here. And we're going back on the Temple Mount. And now, Gamaliel steps up and is actually giving orders. 
This is the first time you see that happen in all of the scripture. Now what's amazing is this break point, whatever it was, if it's this point in time, this guy, Gamaliel, actually becomes the head of the Sanhedrin. So the Senate of the people of Israel, is that something different than the Sanhedrin, or is that just a descriptor to the Senate? It seems to be a descriptor. But it is a unique descriptor. And I would say, because it's unique, it's different than what we had up here. And everything prior to that as well. Let's look at these Pharisees. John 7, verses 45 and 48. I just pulled out some extra stuff, but you can go back and read it. The officers then came to the Kohen Gedalim, that's high priests, plural, which is stupid, should never happen, and the Pharisees who said to them, Why didn't you bring him? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? That's also rulers in your Bible. John always talks about it this way. The high priests and the Pharisees. High priests and Pharisees. Every time he talks about it. It's high priests and the Pharisees. I think John's got an in. I think John's seen the inner politics. And I think I can, I can demonstrate that. He's seen the inner politics. And because of that, he really knows. It's the power of the high priests. And it's the Pharisees. But when he says Pharisees, he says it with a bad taste in his mouth. So they're questioning. Have any of the rulers uh, or the Pharisees believed in him? As if rulers and Pharisees are different. It's like you've got this elite class. John 7, verses 15 and 51. Nicodemus, right? Who had gone to him before, and who was one of them? He's a believer. Said to them, by the way, he also... Help bury him, right? Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? So they're bad mouthing the master and Nakimoto is stepping up. Pretty cool. John twelve, verse forty two, nevertheless, many, even the authorities, that's the same word as here, it's rulers in some other translations, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees they didn't confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So you get the politics thing going. Classic Christians, if you will. But we don't have any discussions like this about the high priests or the Sadducees in the Scripture. But we seem to have, when, when Nakdimon goes to Yeshua, he says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, I'm talking about being born again. Are you a ruler of the people and you don't know this? You're a teacher of the law, a ruler. Within each group of both Sadducees and Pharisees, there are rulers. They are power brokers or players, political players, if you will. But you've still got in these political players, these are some of the ones that are named, Nicodemus, Gamaliel, Annas, and Caiaphas, or Caiaphas. You've got good and bad. Right? Good and bad. Not all of them were corrupt. So that's the ruler thing. John 19 is one of my favorite. Verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a Talmud of Yeshua, but secretly for fear of the Yehudim, which means he's not telling everybody, 
asked Pilatos or Pilate that he might take away the body of Yeshua, and Pilatos gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nachdemon also, who earlier had come to Yeshua by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. His two rich guys, the Pharisees, both of them. And we don't know that Yosef is, but we certainly know that Nachdemon is a ruler of the people. So he's in that second-class status. And yet, we forget that the master was actually buried by two Pharisees, one of whom was certainly a ruler of the people. On Passover. On Passover, you bet. And because of that, unclean. Matthew says all the chief priests and the elders of the people arrested him. That's what Matthew says. Mark says the chief priests, the elders and scribes, and the whole council. Luke says the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, the whole company of them brought him to Pilate, then to Herod. But only the chief priests and scribes are mentioned. So I would say in the synoptic gospels, there's an overwhelming sense of Sadducees. Even though the word whole council is used, we've got a description of chief priests, elders, and scribes. So, what's up with John? He calls them chief priests and Pharisees consistently. And the Pharisees are not mentioned in any part of the trial or subsequent crucifixion. So I want to discount the way he describes that. And I would say that the most, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I was in the church and young, the first book they told me to read was the book of John. You want to read the book of John, right? Because that's the, that's the book that's for Gentiles. I think that's exactly the opposite, actually. But if you read the book of John, you will come out with the idea that the Pharisees are the worst people on the planet. And of course, that's the church's position. Here's a summary, and we're done. The Sanhedrin was altered by the exile from the Temple Mount, allowing little, if any, participation or influence by the Pharisees. Peter and John were detained overnight by the council of the Sadducees and told not to preach resurrection in Yeshua's name, and they ignored it. After many extraordinary miracles, including that shadow stuff, the entire group of the apostles were arrested and thrown into a public prison, and this seems to be the tipping point for the Pharisees to return to the Sanhedrin. Unfortunately for Stephen, the council can once again decide life and death. I think that the, there's, a, there's a difference in the text. And I think that we can see that something happened. What happened? We have no idea. Josephus can't possibly know. He's not plugged in that close. The Bible doesn't tell us. All we can go by is the way the text changes. And we get some unique things. I, uh, I feel pretty good about it. But it really has no bearing on anything other than when somebody says that the Pharisees were terrible people, we should be able to at least say, hmm, if they were that terrible, why did they bury him? If they were that terrible, why did he eat with them? If, he was, if they were that terrible, why did he take the time to point out the fact that they did not need a physician? If they were that terrible, why did he take the time to berate them for their hypocrisy? 
some things to look at. But why would they offer to help him, warn him? Exactly. Why would they warn him that Herod was out to kill him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. So. It is. It is. All right. So, uh, again, as with uh, last week, um, we've got one class rather than two. We finish early so you guys can get home or and or have some uh, have some wine and, and spend more time in chit-chat than uh, normally. What's your thoughts on this uh, on this concept? It's great to have some uh, perspective of the post show at time. You know, a lot of I think we need to have that perspective of not only the, the post show at time but the uh, intertestamental periods, as your Bibles will sometimes put it, sure. you know, having that that disconnect, as it were, from you know, the end of either Chronicles or um, what is it, uh, Malachi, Malachi, the uh, Italian prophet. That's right. Um, having that disconnect from there until the beginning of Matthew, there's a lot going on, and, and, and as we've talked about, a whole lot, a whole lot, and it really, you really have to have that in order to fully grasp yes you can read the Bible by itself but it, there's a lot more going on culturally, economically um, religiously well, as, as, uh, all of these are things that the Bible doesn't actually mention right? because it's not just a history book right and as Rick Spurlock mentioned a year or two ago if, if you're not looking before Matthew starts, mm-hmm. you won't know about anything about the 18 measures. Yep. How, how are you going to deal with the whole concept that's going on with Paul and believing Absolutely. that you've got to be a Jew and ethnicity saves us and so forth? Yes, sir. I got you. you brought out where Paul perceived. Yeah, Sanhedrin. that's cool, isn't it? really jumped out at me this time because I've read a lot on Paul before, even in Bible college, and there was... You know, a bunch of theories that, you know, maybe he wasn't completely healed in his eyes from his encounter with Yeshua. So uh-huh. it was more of a, you know, he was making up and squinting for his vision loss or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So to see it... Um, in a different perspective. That, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder, why, would, why wouldn't he know that? If it had always been that way, why wouldn't he know that? Right. Yes, sir. Uh, so to clarify. You're saying that in the first three Gospels, um, the Pharisees are they're in a good light? No, not well, necessarily. That's not my, my point, though. In John, when it says chief priests and Pharisees, constantly, consistently, he's using that as a that's like a as a short, title, shorthand short for hand. the Sanhedrin, for the because for the ruling. Uh, the the Jewish authorities, the religious authorities, I think, is what John is trying to say. And then, because um, the Pharisees sort of drop out of the narrative, yeah, after he gets delivered up to the Addison Caiaphas, yes. So is that your point? Yeah, is that um, two two points? Uh, and you you nail the first one that um, he's using this 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 term to describe the religious authorities, and then. When he gets uh, offered up, we don't hear about or see the Pharisees anymore in his narrative. And he, as opposed to the other writers, only uses the term Sanhedrin one time in 20 chapters. 
sounds, it sounds mildly plausible. So I got a mildly plausible out of Pete. I mean, that's, that's over the top for me. Are you offering a suggestion as to why he would refer to them as the chief priests and Pharisees? Yeah. Um, I, um, thank you. I, I neglected to add that in. Um, there's, there's one point in the narrative of Yeshua's last night, if you'll recall. Um, he goes to the garden after the uh, after Seder. Um, we've got that little deal of, I'm going to go pray. You guys should pray too. He goes off by himself. You remember. Comes back a little while later. They fell asleep. Bummer. I hate it. I've done that too. I know you have too. Okay. So, he, you know, he goes back. You know, finally, clubs, lanterns, torches, right? And we've got officers showing up from the chief priests. They're from the temple. Clearly the Pharisees are not involved with this, but they take him under arrest. And where do they take him? They take him to Annas' house. And then they take him from Annas' house to Caiaphas' house, and so on. And you're familiar with the story. But it's interesting that if you look at it in the book of John, John, who's very careful never to name himself, uh, but refers to himself in the third person, right? The disciple whom he loved, or uh, the disciple that was, was going there with Peter, or Peter ran to the temple, fleet of foot. But the other disciple got there first. You know. So he's always referring to himself in the third person, but never names himself, right? Well, he mentions that when Yeshua is brought into Annas' house or Caiaphas' house, I can't remember which one, I think it's Annas' house. Um, this, is, this is at the time when, uh, when Peter's going through that whole deal of denying the master, right? Remember the slave girl who's in charge of the door says, well, you were one of his disciples, weren't you? No, I wasn't. That's number one. I saw you eat. Right? Yeah. And then he's warming himself by the fire. Okay. The fire's inside Annas' courtyard. Okay? So they take him to Annas' house, and they go into the courtyard. But Peter's left standing outside. But it says, John, who was known to the high priest asked to have him let in. So they let Peter in. Now he's in the courtyard. That's where the fire is. That's his second denial. So my point in this is, John's a player. We don't realize it, but John's a player. John's known by the high priest. I think he's seen the inner workings. He knows these folks are corrupt. And he knows that there's corrupt Pharisees as well. And he's just kind of lumping those religious leaders, all of whom are responsible for the Master's crucifixion, into this this phrase, the chief priests and the Pharisees. He's a spy. Yeah, it seems that he can slip in, and we... Fortunately, because he was able to, we know what went on inside Annas' house and then Caiaphas's. It's so appropriate far. considering this week's abortion. Yeah. This yeah. gives a neat answer to someone's question. You know, why is there evil in the world? And, of course, our answer is because God allows it and he even works through it. Because, in this case, the Sanhedrin wasn't as corrupt as it was. It might have been more difficult for what happened to actually happen, Mm. or even maybe it wouldn't have, because of course he would have never committed something worthy of death. Yes. So, it's it's just really interesting. That's a good point. And and to my point last week, 
I believe that's the number one reason why he chose not to cleanse the temple on the day he walked into Jerusalem. It says he walked into the temple, he looked around, and he left. Went back to Bethany for the night, came back in the morning, and then he made the court of whips and cleaned everything out. I think he wanted as many people there as possible. I think he wanted to make it as big a show as possible and tick these guys off to make them kill him. I think he set it up so that he would definitely be killed by these guys. Bad tries to take the uh, lead and good triumphs. Other comments, questions? These are great. Good? Good? All right. I'm done trying to figure out what happened to the Sanhedrin uh, during this uh, multi-month period. It really didn't last that long, if you think about it. Passover is when the Master's crucified. I believe it was just before Passover that the Sanhedrin was taken over by the Sadducees, and that's why there was such a difference in the temple when he showed up on that Sunday morning. And he's like, well, I've seen with my own eyes that you have made this a den of robbers, and I'm going to kick your butt tomorrow morning. He goes back up, comes in in the morning, clears everybody out, Shavuot, you still have that same group in charge. But within a month or two, something happened. Maybe it was that all of the apostles were thrown into a public prison. Maybe the Pharisees were working a political machine trying to do something to get it back in, and they just happened to get in back in about the same time. All I know is, with that Senate reference, there seems to be a significant difference, according to uh, Luke. Um, because we can, we've, we've got the beauty of it is, Luke gives us the, the descriptions before the master is killed, and then after he rises. Yes, sir. I was just going to say another scripture that stood out to me that I've never seen before in this light is uh, the reference in Jeremiah, and that the parallel to when Yeshua walks in. Yeah, it's, I, it's pretty good. I, like I just that. think it's neat. It's yeah. uh, we'll. Uh, when he comes back, you know, I've, I've, you guys are just going to have to wait in line. I've got a bunch of questions for him, but, you know, when I'm done, uh, you know, step up there. Um, see, I've, I've already got the number, you know, the ticky friend there. All right, well, let's, uh, let's pray, shall we? Good Father, I thank you for these men that even after a long days at work, they, uh, they choose to come and study together. Father, I pray that you'll bless them, that, uh, in this month coming, uh, when we're not meeting, they would take the time to continue to study. That you would find them faithful in your word. That you would see that their actions are consistent with their faith. That others may come to know you, the true Messiah. That your name would be lifted up and glorified throughout all the earth. And in the end, that it would hasten the coming of your Son. Father, I'm grateful for these men. I ask you to bless them. We pray these things, B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, and our Lord. And all these godly men said, Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys, very much.